So as we've already said, today is what the world calls Easter. A day set apart to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in churches throughout well, throughout Western culture today, they'll be gathering in churches, some many for the first time since Christmas, and many for the only time before next Christmas, to hear a message of hope, to hear a message of reassurance about the, the power of the resurrection. And, and Paul even says something about that. I, I won't, I'll be returning to this several times, but if you want to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. It's an oft-quoted verse. But Paul says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And this is what many people want to hear today. They want to hear about the power of the resurrection. Uh, the New Living Translation, because in the King James it says and the power of his resurrection. And what does that mean? The New Living Translation says that I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So what is that power? What is the power of his resurrection is the question today. In, in, a, in a sense... Uh, the beginning of what I have today is kind of a typical Easter message. And then we'll see where it goes to more of a gospel message. What is the power of his resurrection? Well, first thing, I'll give you like the whole three-point sermon. It's, it's the power of forgiveness. The resurrection is the power of forgiveness. We're told in Isaiah 53 that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The verse before that says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It was because of what he experienced on the cross that we're able to have forgiveness. Um, Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14 you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it if you want to make a note of it later. It says, And you, uh, Paul talking to the church at Colossae, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that w was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Romans 5.8 says God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was that sacrifice that made the way for us to be forgiven. But it goes a step further than that because that forgiveness would be limited in time. It would be limited in scope if Christ were not alive. In an, in an earlier effort, I tried to talk about Jesus' work as the great high priest. And on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel went into the Holy of Holies. It was the only day of the year that he could go into the Holy of Holies, having first made offering for himself so that he was cleansed, and then taking offering for the people into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. And they tied a cord to him. Yeah. 
Because if by any means that sacrifice was not acceptable to God, then the high priest would be struck dead and they'd have to drag him out because they couldn't go in to get him. If the high priest walked out of the Holy of Holies, then that sacrifice was deemed acceptable and the people were forgiven. Well, such is the case as Jesus died. He was able to enter into the Holy of Holies, but when he came out of that tomb very much alive, it proved that God found his sacrifice acceptable. And so his resurrection is the power of forgiveness for our sins. It's also the power of redemption. See, we were slaves to sin. We all were slaves to sin. Uh, there are many, many passages you could go to, but Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye will yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but that word obey or obedience can also be rendered, and in fact the word obey just means to submit yourself to the authority of another. If you obey someone, then you submit yourself to the authority of someone. So, whom ye obey, to him are ye servants. So if you obey, if you submit yourself to the authority of sin, then you are a servant or a slave of sin. But First Peter tells us that ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. We were servants of sin, but because of Christ's sacrifice, he purchased us out of servanthood to sin. Now, I didn't find a reference for this, but common sense goes to tell you that you can't pay a price if you're dead. A dead man can't go to the store and purchase anything. But because Christ lives and is ever at the right hand of God interceding for us, ever able to show, here was my sacrifice, I bought them. He can only do that because he lives. He can only do that because he is alive. The resurrection the power of the resurrection is the power of eternal redemption for his people. It's also the power of life. The power of the resurrection is the power of life. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first Adam was made a living soul, but the last Adam, that is Christ, was made a quickening spirit. The first Adam was given life. He was made a living soul. But the last Adam is life. He's a quickening spirit. John 10.10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We can go on and on with that. John 3.16, Those who trust in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of all men. In Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 
The power of his resurrection is the power of life. It is the power of forgiveness, the power of redemption. It is the power of life. But now I want to return back to that Philippians 3 passage and let's read a little bit more of it instead of just that one verse. Everything must be taken in context. We like to deal in, in snippets. The, the press does that. We find sound bites. We're a sound bite culture. We want to take this little thing. It doesn't matter if it's out of context as long as it fits the narrative that we wish to convey. And we berate the media or we berate others as being libelous for doing so, but the people of God have been doing it for far too long. <laughs> Taking sound bites out of Scripture to fit their narrative of what they think their God should be created to be. So let's give a little more context. Verses 8 through 10. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I said earlier, all across Western culture, folks are gathering in churches to hear about the power of this resurrection. They want to know the power. They want to experience the great power that raised him from the dead. But what about the fellowship of his sufferings? They say they want to know him, but they really only want to know the part that they like. To know him means to know the entirety. To know both sides of the coin. I'm not trying to say Jesus is only two-dimensional, but I think you understand the metaphor. And I'm going to posit today that just as we teach that repentance and faith are inseparable graces, so inseparable are knowing the power of his resurrection and knowing the fellowship of his suffering. One can't happen without the other. And this is the gospel message for today. It was telling that in Sunday school you talked about how all of the prophets give, give prophecies of judgment. They prophesy against the people. But then there is hope. That's the gospel. That's the gospel is that judgment is coming. God has levied judgment against sin in the world. And it is a dire judgment. And it is terrible news. It's a terrible thing. But then there's hope. More on that later. The fellowship of his suffering. That's kind of a difficult concept. It, we kind of need to break that down a little bit. Fellowship, that word in the Greek is koinonia, which can mean joint participation, uh, teamwork, collaboration, partnership. So we're to have a partnership in his suffering. 
and the the mental picture that immediately comes up is kind of like if if um, you know I, I drop something on, on the floor at work and I, I'm trying to clean it up and and someone comes to try to help me or even more than that I see someone doing something for me that I didn't ask them to do and I immediately want to jump in and help am I am I being a fellow am I having fellowship in their work <clears throat> In one sense, yes, but the thing we have to understand is we cannot participate in order to lighten the load that Christ carried. If we say that we participate in his sufferings as though we suffer somewhat ourselves in order to join with him in partnership with that, then that's a bit of works righteousness. We're saying that we can kind of take part of the load off of his back. You know, Christ carried the cross, I'll carry this part of the cross beat. But that's antithetical to the gospel because Jesus paid it all. Only he was able to do what he did. Only he, only the lamb is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. We can't, also if you teach that, then you run into the problem that some have in that we feel like we must suffer like Christ. We, we must suffer in life but that's not true either in order to be saved you must suffer great pain and humiliation and poverty and self-detriment on a physical level so that's where we always go with that so we have people that have taken self vows of poverty and refuse Refuse to accept any blessing of the Lord because that's not holy. And I guess maybe they feel like they're being participants with him and having fellowship in his suffering. But what we participate in is the purpose behind Jesus' suffering. Hebrews 5.8 I'll read seven. I'll read seven through ten. It says, "Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect or complete." He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> the purpose of Jesus' suffering was so that he would learn obedience. Now, Jesus was the son of God. You, you might say, well, I thought he lived a perfect, sinless life. He did. Jesus didn't have to learn how to obey because he had a, had a habit of disobeying. But as the sovereign of the universe, in order to really, truly understand the human condition, he had to allow himself to step into flesh and submit himself to the authority of his Father. Amen. He had to learn what it was like for the human condition to obey. So in that, through suffering, he learned obedience. But he's also taught us about obedience. 
So how did he learn obedience through suffering? Was it through the stripes? Did he have to be chastised? Did he have to be beaten? Did he have to be scourged? Did he have to be crucified in order to learn obedience? Because if he did, then so much more should we have to suffer those things in order to learn obedience. But we look beyond the surface and we find that the way Jesus learned obedience was his prayer in the garden. Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus, though he was the sovereign of the universe in nature, in part, put that aside and took on this veil of flesh and submitted himself to the authority of the Father, whatever that meant. If God had had another way, if there had been another permissible way, then certainly in his love for his Son, God the Father would have provided it. But there was no other way. That had to be the will of the Father. But in order to be obedient, Jesus had to submit to that. I said earlier that that word obedience is submission. Submission to an authority outside of yourself. It's also surrender. When you submit to an authority beside yourself, you surrender. You surrender your own will. You surrender your own way. You surrender your self-reliance and submit yourself to the authority of another. I said earlier we were, we were slaves to sin and, and many who may hear this may think to themselves, but I'm self-made. I make my own decisions. I'm not a slave to anyone. I'm not a slave to sin. That's another sermon for another day. But let me tell you, yes, you are. Because we were designed and we were created for the glory of God. And anything that falls short of that, including disobedience of His will, is sin. And we become slaves to sin. You are his servants. You are his slaves to whom ye obey, to whom ye submit, to whom ye surrender. And if you surrender to self-will, self-reliance, if you intend to be a self-made man, then you are a slave to sin. Jesus truly could have been a self-made man. Jesus spoke a universe into existence. He trumps me. But yet he learned obedience. He learned to submit to the will of the Father regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost, he surrendered day in and day out throughout his ministry. Even, even becoming obedient, even to the death on the cross, we're also told by Paul. 
So to have a fellowship in his sufferings is not so much that we must self-flagellate or self-punish or bring upon ourselves doom and torment as though we can somehow pay for our own sin. But we can have fellowship in the purpose of his suffering, which is to pray as he did. Not my will, but thine be done. See, we surrender our self-reliance. We surrender our self-will. We learn obedience. And that, that is the heart of repentance. The heart of repentance is to see that, yes, all this time I've gone my own way. And whether I knew it or not, I was a slave to sin. But you're his servants to whom you obey. The change of mind, and I know, I know here among us, we know that there is more to the definition of repentance than a change of mind. But the change of mind that they talk about is one of saying, I can't go my way. I must surrender to God. As opposed to submitting to the authority of sin over my life, surrendering to that authority over my life, I must submit and surrender to the authority of God. And in that repentance, we also realize we have done wrong. We also realize that we are in dire need of mercy and a true surrender throws himself on the mercy of God. But at the heart of repentance is that fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. The power of his resurrection, you know, because it... If we understand that fellowship in his sufferings, that's, that's the declaration of judgment that the prophets have handed out. So where's the hope? And that is the power of his resurrection. You can go with three points about forgiveness and redemption and life, and you can come up with other points, and you can preach all day about the power of his resurrection. But the bottom line is the power of his resurrection is summed up in the word hope. It's the power of hope. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, Jesus, addresses Jesus and says, Jesus, which is our hope. In 1 Peter 1, talking about the Lord again, says, He hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are begotten again to a lively hope by the resurrection. It doesn't get much clearer than that, that that is the power of the resurrection. Paul, who understood the law more than just about anyone, I mean, even even the 12 called disciples, they were not students of the law to the extent that Paul was. Paul knew the law. And yet Paul was able to eschew the law for the grace which he had found in the Lord Jesus Christ and understood that he was the hope. And when he speaks to Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God to our people. But for that hope, he was willing to stand and be judged. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. So we know that we cannot we cannot on our own obey God. We're incapable because we're slaves to sin. We needed one to come to pay the ransom so that we could be bought out. But we also needed him to be alive so that through his spirit living within us we could have the power to learn obedience. So that we could learn to submit and to surrender. That's the hope that we have. Jesus is our hope. Life is still hard. Life is still difficult. Life is still unfair, if you want to put it in those terms. And there may be times that we do suffer along the way. Because it's not my will, but thine be done. And if I think I know better, then I'm questioning the wisdom and the counsel of God. Who am I? Whatever must come my way, I trust in the Lord because he is my hope. I can face sickness, illness, death, destitution, tribulation, persecution, all of these things, they're nothing. For we have hope in Christ. See, whether or not Jesus were raised, whether or not we were saved, life would still be difficult. Yes, standing for truth is difficult sometimes on its own. And, and sometimes that brings its troubles of its own. But those who are still lost in their sins also get sick. Those who are still lost in their sins also deal with family hardships. Even without Christ, life would still be difficult. And with Christ, life is difficult. And if in this life only we had hope in Christ, then Paul's right. We would be most miserable. But this isn't it. Because the power of the resurrection is forgiveness. It's redemption. It's life. It's hope that this is not the end. It's hope that we are more than conquerors through Christ. It's hope that we can do all things through him that strengthens us. Now, that's not talking about I can go jump off a tall building and make it because he gave me strength. Uh, We take that one out of context. But we can bear all that comes our way because we have that hope to look forward to. Because Christ is alive. Gloria Gaither tells um, tells a story of when she was writing Because He Lives. And talked about how they were expecting their child any day now. And the, and the prospect of, of bringing this baby into the world in, in a tumultuous time. 
uh, this was not long after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. I, I believe she said it was in the late 60s. So we had Vietnam going on, the Cold War, and it was it was a scary time for a lot of people. And one couldn't help but feel a little bit hopeless about what are we doing bringing a child into a world like this? And she said the Lord spoke to her. And she remembered that because he lives, there is hope. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, not me, not another, but because he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. power of the resurrection is hope. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That I may die like him. Now is this Paul saying that he wishes above all things to be crucified? If we read that strictly, then then it seems silly. It seems like that's what he's saying, just like with the fellowship of his sufferings. Christ in his flesh, because he learned obedience to submit to the authority of the Father, died to the flesh. And Paul wants to be made conformable unto that death. In fact, he says in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Colossians 3, he says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So I don't think we can truly understand hope until we understand and experience hopelessness. Just like we don't value the sunshine until it rains. Good news isn't good unless you've heard something that's not. We want to know the whole counsel of God, not just the good parts. But we have a church culture today that wants to know nothing but the power of the resurrection. They have no interest in a fellowship with his sufferings. Many make their salvation their pedigree. Sometimes well-meaning people. Uh, Their salvation becomes their righteousness. Their righteousness. They'll hold it up. And it stunts their growth. See, if we want to truly know Christ... 
then we must want to know the power of his resurrection, sure, but we must also want to know the fellowship with his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings is, is like our repentance. And the power of his resurrection is like our faith. There is inseparable as repentance and faith in the process of salvation and sanctification. <clears throat> little more context. Let's read one more time. This time I'll back up to verse 3 in Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I'm more. And now he's just going to get real with them. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If any man had it going on, it was Paul. But what things were gained to me? Those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect or complete, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Notice the tense in all of that passage. Is it past tense? Or is it future tense? It's always present. See, for Paul, coming to know Christ is a continual process. Too many in too many in our churches even, and in, in the church culture of the day, believe salvation is, is once and done. Now, I believe it's once and done, but I don't believe you stop there. But they receive the gift of salvation, or maybe they think they receive the gift of salvation. They've deceived themselves or been deceived by others into thinking that because they said a prayer or because they agreed with something that they've received the gift of salvation and they have all they need, except on Easter they can come here about the power of the resurrection. But in the present, in the present, Paul says, I count all things as loss 
Anything that is gain to me, I count as loss. It's worthless compared to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus. And I said earlier, some of our people hold up their salvation as their gain. I got mine, now what? And we wonder why, why our churches are stunted. Why we're not growing. Why we don't have the, the power of God in them like in generations past. It's because they no longer want to know Christ. They want to know the power of his resurrection, but they have no interest in the fellowship of his sufferings. They have no interest in day by day being made conformable unto his death. See, if anyone had it going on, it was Paul. He even says, touching the law, blameless. Can any of us say, touching the law, we're blameless? And not fear being struck down for hypocrisy. And yet here, that shows up, Paul having written it, inspired. There must be some truth to it. If anyone had it going on, it was Paul. And even he could count nothing as his own righteousness. Not having my own righteousness. But too often God's people look at their salvation and say, that's my righteousness. What do you have going for you? I'm saved. As if that's a, a badge of honor rather than a privilege bestowed, rather than a gift. It is something I claimed. The salvation is God's. It's not mine. He holds it, not me. He grants it, not me. I have no righteousness. We must, if we truly want to know Christ, if we truly want to know the power of His resurrection, then we must be willing to take fellowship in his sufferings. We must be willing to count all as loss. Not just the day that we were saved, but every day. Until we see him face to face, we must be willing to count all as loss. We must be crucified like Paul daily. We must die to self daily. We must submit and surrender daily and pray, not my will but thine be done daily. Whatever that means, whatever that takes, wherever the Lord leads us, whatever He has us endure. I talked a couple weeks ago about the chastening of the Lord and how sometimes He sends tough times our way that we might perceive as being punishment for some wrong where actually He just wants to teach us something. <clears throat> but even that, even that is a small world of view. Because what was the Lord teaching Christ through crucifixion? Or because Jesus said, not my will but thine, was he using 
Christ to teach us. We must never underestimate or or try to preempt the infinite wisdom of God because we don't know what's going on. So maybe the things that we endure here that are hard for us, maybe it's to teach us. Or maybe he's using us to teach someone else. Maybe he's using us to bring God glory. I mean, and we realize that Jesus suffered and not just at the cross. Sometimes we feel powerless. And sometimes, have you ever had this instance where you knew it was within your power to do something, but for whatever reason you just could not be allowed to intervene? Jesus experienced that too. I'm telling you, there's nothing, there's no experience that we have that he didn't experience. Lazarus, one of his closest friends in the whole world. I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, but when he went to Bethany, he had a place. His best friend in the world. His sisters knew who he was. They didn't understand the extent, but they knew who he was. Lazarus knew who he was, and Lazarus is dying. And Jesus knew that he could have said the word from where he was, and Lazarus would have been healed. How do you know that? Because he did it with a centurion's son. <laughs> or he could have dropped everything and gone there right away, and Lazarus would have been healed. But he had to surrender. He had to submit to the authority of the Father so that the Father's will could be done. So that the Father could be glorified by Lazarus being dead and in the ground and being raised to life again. We tend to think of Mary and Martha having, having to suffer or Lazarus having to suffer. But I tell you what, Jesus suffered in that because he had the power to do something, but he was restrained from doing so because it was not the will of the Father. Day after day, there may be things that come in our lives where we have the power to intervene, we have the power to do something, and the temptation to self-reliance is strong. Which is why day after day we must say, not my will, but thine be done. And there are times when we feel powerless. But we know there's someone who can intervene. God could use someone or God could intervene on his own in some supernatural way, and yet he doesn't. But who are we to judge the infinite wisdom of God? See, certainly the only thing we can do is trust in Him. Because His promises are yes and amen. And sometimes those promises are 70 years in the future. Sometimes they're 400 plus years in the future. We talked about Joseph. Sometimes it's generations past us. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of most men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead. We have hope that all things, God makes all things to work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. We have hope 
And maybe it's because we take fellowship in his suffering that we learn to value and understand the power of that hope even more. But there may be many among us who say, I want to know Christ. Do you really want to know Christ or do you just want to know the power of his resurrection? Do you just want to know his power? Do you just want to know hope? Do you just want to know the good side of things? Or do you want to know the whole counsel of God? Do you want to know the character of Christ? The character of Christ which surrendered his own power and his own volition and submitted to the authority of the Father so that we could learn to be obedient by seeing him and then by him operating through us. On this resurrection day, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Will I ever get there? Even Paul said, not as though I had attained, but I press on. Apprehended that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. What does that even mean? It's very pretty. But right before that, he talks about pressing on toward that mark of the high calling of of God in Christ Jesus. We're apprehended to learn obedience. That is what gives God glory. That we would submit and surrender to him just like Jesus did. That we would learn obedience. That's why we're apprehended. He calls us out. And through his spirit gives us the power to learn obedience. To learn obedience, to know Christ. That's why we're apprehended. To be made conformable to his death and to his life. That's why we're apprehended. So we keep pressing toward the mark so that we may apprehend that for which we are apprehended. To fulfill his purpose for us. So let's press toward that mark. We'll fail along the way. Paul says, leaving behind all the things that are past, I look toward the mark. I'm paraphrasing a little bit right there. But that's what we must do too. We press toward the mark, and day after day, just like a continual process, we seek after God to know Him. Whatever it takes. We can't seek to know just the power of His resurrection. Because the power of his resurrection is made even more mighty by the fellowship of his sufferings.